Bem-vindos ao Type Theory for All podcast. This is your host, Pedro Abreu, and in this episode, we're going to introduce what's this podcast all about. Who am I? What are my research interests? And last but not least, we're going to talk a little bit about my internship experiences at Sci-5, Nomadic Labs, and Galoa. So as I mentioned in the introduction, my name is Pedro Abreu, and I'm a third-year PhD student at Purdue University. My advisor is Professor Benjamin Delaware. You probably already noticed that English is not my first language. That's because I am actually from Brazil, and we talk Portuguese in Brazil. Yeah, we don't talk Spanish there. I'm sorry if you didn't know that. Well, it's a fair assumption because every country in the Latin America speaks Spanish. So if you thought that, that's okay. I forgive you. <laughs> But okay, yeah, I speak Portuguese. My advisor is Professor Benjamin Delaware. He's amazing, really cool guy. If you don't know him, look up his research. Awesome stuff. And what we are working on is a compiler from two type theories. The first one is a type theory of Koch, and we translate that to the type theory of Sadil. Quick parenthesis, I feel so weird saying Koch in a podcast. Can I even say that? Type theory is probably the only place on earth where you can say this word and not, not mean something bad, right? Koch. <laughs> But okay, if you're not familiar with Koch, C-O-Q, that is a theorem prover, interactive theorem prover. And what that basically means is that it's a programming language in which you can also do proofs on it. Yep, you heard me right. You can program and prove the properties of your program in the same language. But enough talking about Koch for now. In the future, we are going to have an episode just to talk about, about Koch, about theorem provers, about Sadil. Let's just say that this research I'm doing, translating Koch to Sedil, is interesting because there are more programs that we can talk about in Koch than there we can talk in Sedil. Let's, let's stop there. I plan to talk a little bit more about Koch and interactive theorem provers more in the future. And this actually brings me to the next topic, which is what's this podcast all about, right? And the answer to that is... This podcast is going to be an interview podcast. So this is going to be pretty much the only episode that you're going to see that's only me talking with you. My next episodes are going to be bringing guests and making them questions about type theory, about their research, about why programming languages is so interesting. And the reason for that is I just feel that we don't have podcasts in this field, in our field. We're not talking about it enough. We're not making people out there excited. There is this gap between what the really cool things that people are doing in academia and actually communicating that to the world. You know, it seems to me right now that in order for you to actually be able to understand and to talk about type theory, you just have to spend, you know, four or five years in academia, getting a PhD, really diving really deep into these subjects in order to start understanding and being able to talk with people about these things. And that's just a shame because type theory is really cool. We are, in my point of view, we are in a turning point for, for type theory, for interactive theory improvers, for actually doing formal methods in general. Because 
we just we are coming up with some really cool compiler correctness stuff we are coming up with some nice languages being built from theory up just look at rust rust for example is a really really cool language that is a lot of theory is actually being formalized and there are some really really smart people working behind that another really cool example that makes me extremely excited about pl at, at this moment is for example concert concert is this compiler that is proven correct using cock as well and it's just there is a lot of benchmarks that runs on a bunch of different compilers and it shows that Comcert is in the industry is the compiler for C that has the least amount of bugs, you know. There's a bunch of cool work happening in synthesis, there's a bunch of cool work happening in software instrumentation, code instrumentation, and there is there's really really many many cool very cool projects happening. This brings me to the to the internships that I was able to do, even though I don't have a PhD yet. And some of these internships I actually started doing before I was in grad school. So pretty much on with the knowledge of my undergrad, I was able to be hired and be somewhat productive doing some PL work. And there were pretty much like four big internships that I've done. That's quite some experience, I guess. The first big internship that I did was at Nikta. At the time, it was called Nikta. Nowadays, it's called Data61. And at Nikta, they were doing some really, really cool work using this interactive theorem prover called Isabel. What they were up to was formally verifying an operating system called CEL4. Cell4. I wasn't really hired because, okay, I was in a, this exchange program in Australia back in the time. In this exchange program, I was forced, I was like, under my, my contract, I had to do an internship, even though it was unpaid. Actually, I don't think I could be paid for the internship. So I went, I could meet some people inside of, at, at, inside of Nikta at that time. And I asked them, hey, can I work for you for free? And they were like, well, <laughs> I mean, like, <laughs> you want to work for free? Sure, go for it. But... So since I was actually like, this was not really a slave work or anything like that. It's just like, I was being paid by some other source to work, right? Like I was, I was being paid from Brazil government. So that, that was fine, right? Like they just had to do some paperwork and make sure that I would be doing something. Even though I don't think I was extremely productive and I didn't accomplish something super big. It was, it was a turning point in my career for going for PL, you know, like I was already excited and already liked PL, but this internship, I met some really, really cool people. They showed me some really, really cool stuff and, and how interesting this, this field could be. So I was working in, in, I wasn't working in the CEL4 project. I was working on a file, the formal verification of a file system. And it was, and it was directed by Gabby Keller back at the time. Yeah, after that, I, I went back to Brazil. My advisor sent me to OPLSS, which is Oregon Programming Languages Summer School, which I definitely, definitely recommend anyone who is interested in this stuff going if you have the opportunity when things go back to normal. Okay, so I was applying for grad school. And then I remembered that I would be part of many mailing lists back at the time. And there was this company called sci Five that they were hire, hiring cock engineering, so proof engineers, right? 
that had some some formal knowledge and more specifically if they were could could use cock right so i'm like well i'm not doing much right here i have my cv real well done for my grad school application so let's just go ahead and send my cv what what can go wrong right so i sent them my cv and for my big surprise they were interested in me and they did me an interview this was a very interesting interview now murali which was the project lead for the the formal verification team at sci5 he interviewed me and he gave me this problem to solve in cog he asked me to prove the pigeonhole principle and of course i could not finish it during the interview the interview was like one hour he just wanted to, to see if i was confident and i knew what cock was about if i knew how to use the tactics and all of that so i i did that and i couldn't i could not finish and he was like yeah yeah just finish it up and mail me the solution so i spent the next i don't know like 10 20 hours just crashing it up and and i i sent him the email so he he got back to me and he's like, okay, cool. We want to hire you. Let's do it. And I'm like, uh, <laughs> you're, you're sure you want to hire like this undergrad that I just finished my stuff. I'm like, yeah, let's, let's do it. And since I was still applying for grad school, there was this problem about getting all the visa details. That is this complication of getting working visa and all of that. So they decided, they decided to hire me remotely. So what we did, they flew me in to San Mateo at the Bay Area. I was supposed to stay there for like two weeks for me getting my feet wet and understanding how to get my work started and understand how the company works, who are the people, get to meet everyone, you know, like this welcome welcome things that is, is usual. So I, I flew in to San Mateo and oh my God, that was such a, such an intense experience. It was not my first time out of Brazil, but here's what happened. I got in there and the CTO, either CTO or CEO of the company, Yan Sub Lee, sits down with me, me and Murali, and he starts going through kind of like the the idea behind of why he's building this formal, this real formal verification team inside the company. Oh yeah, one thing I didn't I didn't mention is the company is is building the first chips for Risk Five. If you don't know anything about Risk Five, I suggest that you take a look at it at some point. It's it's a very interesting project. So the the main idea of Risk Five, the Risk Five project, is to be an open source ISA. So the Sci-Fi company is building the chips for this ISA. And being an open source ISA, it's, there is a, a bunch of tools, a bunch of details that you don't have to pay for all the, the big fees that the big companies will will ask you for, like Intel or AMD, because they are the, the big players in the market. So this Sci-Fi company is, is a startup that is, you know, trying to to bring a balance in this in this field. And that's, that's very, very interesting. So Yansab Lee sits down with me and Morali at his office and starting, starts telling us the story of the Intel FDIV bug. And if you're not familiar with the FDIV bug, it was basically a bug that happened on Intel processors in their floating point unit. And this led for them to make a, a very, very big recall. And it cost them nearly $500 million 
1995. And if you correct that with the inflation of nowadays, that's nearly $800 million. And Yansup is very, very worried about that. And he's like, so that's why we want to really, really make sure that our floating point unit will have no bugs because the IEEE spec is very hard to implement and we want to make sure that things work as smoothly as possible. And we want to apply the tip of the iceberg in technology and informal methods that we can. So we hired Morali and Morali just finished his postdoc at MIT and he was working on a language for specifying circuit circuits in Coq. So you could make you could prove things about circuits in Coq and extract that code down to Verilog or VHDL or BlueSpec, which is another circuit language. And then I'm like, damn, that's a pretty cool idea. That's really nice. I I like it. So the next few weeks, I start feeling extremely, extremely dumb near Morali because he was going through and explaining me all the things and going through some really low level stuff, teaching me how to work with his, with his language called Kami. And this first week and a half, this first week was very, very pressuring for me. It was a very tough experience. I felt very, very dumb. So what I would do, I would come in earlier before Morali and like study and try to get ready for when he arrived. I could try to follow and like redo all of his examples and try to follow what he was doing. And in the end of the day, I felt like things started progressing. And then after two weeks, I was supposed to go back to Brazil. But then we needed to talk with, 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 him, with, a, with a professor at Berkeley because he was the guy who implemented the code that is actually used in the chip. So I had to wait two more weeks and I ended up staying there for one, one month, but that's not really important. Let's talk about the actual work that I did, which was formally verifying that the floating point unit of the CPU was correct with respect to the IEEE 764 spec, which if you know anything about floating point, that's the standard spec that we have nowadays. And man, was that hard. I didn't, I didn't actually finish it. I could get a lot done. I don't know how much, how much they actually used of my, of my work, but let's put it this way. I am surprised that we could get to the moon. If this is the best floating point that we can come up with, this is the best way we can, we can do floating point arithmetic in our computers. <laughs> it may sound like I'm exaggerating, but there are so many edge cases. It is so easy to get things wrong. There are many, many tiny details that can just make things crash and not work according to the specification. I just kept banging my head against the code for pretty much three months. And once I thought that things were working properly, things were correct, we would just hit another bug. And then I would have to spend the next week or week and a half thinking about what the problem was and how to fix it and how to actually implement the proper, the proper solution. So I just felt like I was always trying to catch up against something. And if you ever work down to the bit level, 
it's a very very hard task because every everything seems so cryptic down there. That's not some work that I look forward doing again. <laughs> honestly, low level low level programming, low level reasoning is not for me. I really appreciate who can do it because it's extremely important. We really need these sort of things in our computers, but it's not for me. My thing is more more formal verification, more type theory, more lambda calculus sort of things. Which leads me to my next internship, which was at Galois. So Galois is this pretty cool company working in the field of formal methods. More specifically, they've been doing a lot of work in cryptography inside of formal methods. And they were one of the first companies to adopt Haskell out in the wild. And here is a piece of random trivia. Their founder, Dr. John Launchbury, was actually one of the inventors of monads. Monads is one of those key concepts that you use when you're programming in Haskell. And apparently his dream when he was building this company was to be able to build a workplace where people could work just as they work in academia, which means that they would have a lot of flexibility and they would have a lot of freedom to do their work, to, to research and, and come up with new ideas and implement things that they thought were interesting. And then I, I got there in the summer of 2019, so last summer, well, two summers ago, and I started working in, so I was working in kind of formally verifying this cryptographic tool for Amazon. So Amazon hired Galois to apply their tools to guarantee the formal correctness of their code, right? The code they were looking into was called S2N, and that's a some cryptographic library that I don't remember on the top of my head which one, which cryptography thing is, is related to that. And my goal with the first part of the internship was to be able to run this tool Galois has called SAW, SAW Workbench. And work, running SAW on this S2N library, it would formally, it would guarantee that the code was at the very least memory safe. So what that means is that when the program runs, there will be no, it will not try to access a memory that is not allocated. That's what memory safety means. In the, in, the, in the high level. So my my goal was to apply this saw workbench on top of this library to make sure that the, the code would, would run properly. And how saw works is that it symbolically executes the path, the whole the path of the whole program, assuming that you can compile your program down to the to LLVM. So basically, you compile. So so basically, here's how things work in a high level. You compile down your code to LLVM, and then there is this other tool called Crucible, which is an amazing Haskell code base. It's everything written in in this crazy Haskell with a bunch of language extensions. Like it's a, it's a crazy crazy code base. Probably one of the most advanced Haskell code bases out there in the wild. Check it out. Crucible. I'll link the I'll leave the link into the description. Anyways, cr 
Crucible will symbolically execute the LLVM code. Symbolically execute means is that it will take the code and it will transform all the paths that that, that code can, can actually execute and transform that in, in an SMT solver formula. So this huge, huge propositional formula and will we'll fit that formula to the SMT solver. And then the SMT solver will say, okay, this formula is, is good. This formula is satisfiable. And that means that your program is memory safe. There is, and the problem, the problem with that is that if you ever worked with an SMT solver in your life, you know that it can be very hard to debug. So imagine that you have a code and you want to prove using saw that it is memory safe. So you run Crucible and then Crucible tells, nope, there is a problem with this code. What do you do? Things can get pretty hairy then. But with a lot of experience and a lot of hacking around, you get you got to finally do it. So we could we could make it run. And another cool, really, really cool thing about Crucible, about Saul and Crucible working together is that not only you can prove that your program is memory safe, so you can also write on a specification which your language should meet. And you write that specification in this other language called Cryptol, which is kind of based on, on Haskell, but it provides some, some nice features and it's a very clean language for you to write specifications on and very clean for you to read and see, oh yeah, this is how my little function should work. And then what Saw is going to do is going to symbolically execute your original code against and match the output against the code produced by Cryptol, by your specification in Cryptol. So this is a really, really cool piece of software. How about the workplace itself? It was a great, great experience working at Gala. People there is incredible. They are extremely smart. I could come over and ask these amazing people all sorts of questions and they would be very helpful. And I didn't feel like I was kind of just bothering. They would actually take their time and go to the whiteboard with me, explain things through. Or, you know, when I was in the kitchen, if there was someone in the kitchen and I want to just make conversation, they would be very open about it. My first day, a lot of people came over to just to say hi and to introduce themselves and that if I needed anything, I could come over to them. It was incredible. And also my cohort of other interns was just amazing. We had such a good time. <laughs> we would come over to my house and like just have a good time very often. Galois Workplace is also really cool. They have a really nice open area. They had like pool table and a really cool kitchen with like ice cream with all sorts of drinks and a really good espresso machine. Oh my God, the pinball, the pinball machine. I would play so much pinball. Hey, Joey Dawes, if you're listening to this, I will come back and get your high score, okay? Eventually. <laughs> Joey Dawes was kind of my nemesis over there because he holds this crazy high score and I took my whole, the whole summer trying to beat him. I got to a position where I thought I could, I could finally do it, but it would literally take almost two hours of perfect gameplay in order to beat his highest, highest score. The, the, the man is a beast. <laughs> and by the way, he, he just also, 
By the way, Joey Dodds also just started a podcast called Building Better Systems. So if you haven't checked that out and you're listening to this, you should definitely check his podcast. I'm pretty sure you would like that podcast too. Moving forward, let's talk about my internship at Nomadic Labs. So Nomadic Labs is this company behind the cryptocurrency Tezos. And if you understand anything about cryptocurrency, you probably know about Ethereum. And Ethereum has uh, this smart contract language where you can pretty much program on the blockchain, right? The idea of Tezos is to be a contender with, with Ethereum. So kind of a better Ethereum, let's put it that way. And they are very interested in applying formal methods and getting formal guarantees that their smart contract language is safe, is correct. Everything will work as they expect. And they're trying to, to check those in the most formal way possible. And in order to accomplish that, their whole code base is written in OCaml because they argue that OCaml will be easier to, spec to formally specify and to make proofs about. And then they hired this guy called Guillaume Claret. Sorry if I butchered your French, man. His PhD project was translating OCaml to Coq. And then he was, he was making some tweaks on this framework called Coq of OCaml in order to be able to, tr to translate Tezos code base to Coq and then hire other set of people to do some formal verification on top of that. So having all of their code base in Coq, they would be able to, to prove everything they want, prove their stuff in Coq, right? And then I saw this really cool project while I was applying for some summer internships. And then I started talking with, with, with Guillaume. And then I started, I made him a couple of questions and we started exchanging a couple of emails. And we realized that I, I was working on a very similar problem that was translating between these two languages and more particularly translating functions with pattern matchings, right? And I was, I was actually doing, doing some research and thinking on the best ways of achieving that. So making him a couple of questions and, and, and pointing a couple of papers that he didn't have the chance to look at yet. We realized that it would be an interesting opportunity for me to come over during the summer and work with him. So we we do that. We decide that I'm, I'm flying to Paris to help him out and COVID happened and I could not fly fly over and I just stayed in my basement working the whole summer. Okay, fine, it's not it was not my basement. I work from my room, but you 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 got the idea, right? And then it was a really cool summer where I had the opportunity to learn a lot and to work a lot and learn. I had to learn OCaml. I didn't know anything about OCaml. And I had a chance to talk with some really cool guys that has been working on the semantics behind OCaml and how things are supposed to work. And <laughs> if you know me, you know that I, I ask a lot of a lot of very annoying questions, which is one of the reasons I'm doing this podcast, because I want to annoy more people and do more annoying questions to more people. And then I could... I'm in this process of wrapping things up, wrapping this translation. The translation that we're talking about here is translating GADTs. GADTs is short for generalized algebraic data types. And if you know anything about functional programming, algebraic data types is this very nice and elegant way to model your data. It is very, very useful for dealing with compilers, dealing with any sort of, of data, really. That's how, that's how you usually model your data in a functional programming language. 
And the idea of generalized algebraic data types is that it, it allows you to change the parameters of your of your data, right? You can think you can think of algebraic data types as disjoint unions. And the, the base the basic difference between unions in C and the, the concept of algebraic data type is that you have a way to peek into the data and to see what kind of data that is. So for example, if, if you have a, a union that can be either a, an integer or a string, you would need to label this data, like to come up with, with a struct to say, okay, this union will actually be an integer or it will actually be a string. There is no built-in way for you to pick the data and to decide, yeah, this is an integer, this is a string. No, you have to build that on top, right? So the key idea of algebraic data type is that just by having the data, you have a way to decide to discriminate on the, on the different types of this data. And that's what we call the constructors of the data, right? It is a really cool idea because this is the key concept behind one of the most powerful things that functional programming languages has to bring to the table, in my point of view, which is pattern matching. And pattern matching is beautiful. Pattern matching is literally just looking at your data and deciding what it is, what are the different ways that this data can be built and how the function, how your function is going to behave in each one of those ways, right? So my work was to make this part of translating the generalized algebraic data types, JDTs, from OCaml to COG. And why is this interesting? Actually, why did they have to hire a whole other PhD student in order to do that? Why didn't just Guillaume go ahead and, and did that? It's actually because in order to do that, there were some mismatches between the type system of COG and the type system of OCaml. The way that JDTs work in in OCaml is is kind of different of the way that it works in in COG. And if you want to know a little bit more details about this, check out my website. I have a blog post kind of explaining a, a, a few explaining a small example of of how things can break if you're not careful. And one of the particular things that it's very common for you to do in in OCaml that is kind of it's not kind of implemented yet in COG is this idea of an impossible branch, where while you are doing your pattern match, sometimes a branch is simply not possible to reach. So in OCaml, you can just not write it down, but in COG, you have to write it. So when you are doing this translation, you have to be careful on how to translate it and how to convince COG that that branch does not exist. Because COG is not very smart and doesn't really know when this branch is impossible or not. So we have we have to be smart for Koch and tell him how to do this this elimination or why this branch is actually impossible. And that's where I come in. I had to do quite some research before actually implementing this stuff. It's been a, a few months now and I didn't and I still didn't complete this work, but I'm almost there, I swear. <laughs> This concludes our first episode of the Type Theory for All podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you have any comments or questions, or you think I made any imprecision during this episode, please reach out. Our website is typetheoryforall.com. And I will see you next time.